That's right. If you're going to do a podcast about movies, about sci-fi, or pop culture, sooner or later you have to do 2001 A Space Odyssey. So I'm Bentley. And I'm Samuel. And this is the Review Podcast. podcast. But do we have to, though? Yes, you have to. Do we have to? Yes, you have to. (laughs) So I had not seen 2001 A Space Odyssey, the Stanley Kubrick masterpiece, in probably 20 years. I know it like the back of my hand because I've... I've been a sci-fi fan, and this was science fiction before Star Wars, and yet it's so well known that you can just get little pieces of it referenced on, you know, The Daily Show and... Archer. Everything. It's, it's throughout our culture, but very few people have watched it start to finish, so it is actually perfect for this podcast because our question before us is, are the memes enough? Or do you really need to sit and watch, including the intermission, Stanley Kubrick's masterpiece, 2001 A Space Odyssey? And last night, we had a chance to test that. We got to see it on the big screen at the Gateway Theater. Shout-outs to the Gateway Theater, as we always do. Um, 70 millimeter, Beautifully restored by Christopher Nolan and his team. This was Christopher Nolan's first project after the completion of dunkirk he said i want to remaster 2001 a space odyssey it's his favorite film it's tom hanks favorite film both george lucas steven spielberg and ridley scott all unanimously agree it's the greatest science fiction film of all time that none of them are ever going to surpass it and there it was in all of its glory and and i i couldn't give two shakes of a lamb's tail about it. <laughs> I felt very fortunate that Samuel didn't run from the theater when the lights came up for the intermission. I honestly, I, I was so close to falling asleep during parts of this film. It's, it's, I, uh, should we take it in order? Okay, first the monkeys. Okay, the monkeys are the best part. The monkeys are the best part. Okay, so the monkey, the monkey prologue, which has confounded audiences for what four decades now. Yes, this comes out in 1968, so I am exactly as old. Oh, it's old. exactly 50, oh, sorry, 50 years uh, old. I am exactly the age of 2001 A Space Odyssey, and, and I'm going to defend it here somewhat today. I'm going to reserve my final answer for the end, but as Samuel was squirming beside me last night, uh, you know, there was a lot in the movie that did resonate with me because I remember the the tone of our culture in the heyday, you know, of the space Effort, right? I, I I don't remember the men landing on the moon because I was only a few years old. But we were still going up into space, and we had the Soyuz project with the Soviet Union. You know, we were still doing stuff in the seventies, which I do remember. So this movie is about a part of our culture that I do remember very well. But I wasn't old enough to remember the monkeys. Well, you also remember Pan Am Airlines, apparently. <laughs> yes, Pan Am. <laughs> I mean, it's so. The, Look, monkey, the, the monkey prologue is perfectly serviceable. Like the monkey prologue has a shape to it. It has like it has a narrative thrust. That moment of realization where the monkey figures out he can use the club as a tool yep. is brilliantly constructed and really well done. And it has these great uh, intersecting shots of him crushing the skull of this uh, already deceased animal and yep. these these pigs falling over dead from from it. You know, the pigs presumably being beaten to death with the same Correct. club. Yep. I thought that was brilliant. Great He's learned to kill. Yeah, brilliant filmmaking. And and calling that section the dawn of man is is a really brilliant prologue. And, and I 
I thought the prologue hangs together perfectly fine. I think the monkeys are are great, actually. And and especially the very end of the monkeys where they throw the club up in the air and it becomes, you know, a satellite. Yes. So there you have the movie in like the first 20 minutes. There's no human dialogue for the first 25 minutes because it's all the dawn of man and really heavy-handed. I mean, this movie is art with a capital A. And, and anyone who's listened to the podcast for any length of time knows, and certainly people who know me in person have, know that I have nothing but active disdain for anything that tries to wear like art on its sleeve. Like, oh, this yeah. is an important film. I yeah. do not well, care. And so you can tell that about 2001 A Space Odyssey right Stanley, away. Stanley Kubrick is so far up his own ass in this movie. <laughs> well, the you... classical music, the slow motion. Yeah, yeah. I'm an artist. I'm like, exactly. this is the exact film that people point to to try and defend the director as auteur theory. And yeah. I hate that stuff. Yeah, I know. It takes I a know. team of dozens, if not hundreds of people, to make a coherent film get to the screen. This did not just... Stanley Kubrick did not begat himself. It, 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 right, right. And he's done plenty of things that are not this high-toned artistic thing, right? It's funny that uh, The Gateway is showing this as part of a summer of Kubrick, and the ones that they pick out are all the ones that all the film geeks love, and they were in force in the audience last night. Oh, my night. God. We were packed in. The guy sitting right next to me, first of all, I pegged him from the parking lot that he was going to 2001, and then he turned to the person on his other side and bragged during an mission that he had seen the movie 20 times okay yeah try breathing out of your nose sometimes loser <laughs> so the problem is that it is completely heavy-handed even the beginning part with the apes and the throwing up of the bone tool that becomes a satellite that is completely iconic right that is one of the things that you know in our pop culture about 2001 a space odyssey the bone turning into the satellite Except, boy, if you're sitting there to watch it on a Saturday night, even on the big screen, you're like, okay, uh, he's taking 30 minutes for about a three-minute idea. And yeah. you had the best line. <laughs> I think at the intermission, you were like, I feel like I'm watching a National Geographic special. Yeah, it is a National <laughs> Geographic Because that's what it is. There's like... <laughs> there are, this is man. The first half of this movie, no matter what's on screen or who is talking, there are no people in this movie. There are just like... No, even when they go to the space station... There are surprisingly few people. There are like six actors walking around yeah, the space station. And they're all just completely made out of cardboard. They're not doing <laughs> anything. They're they're just they're they're talking about really nothing, and they're not really interacting on any sort of genuine human level. And it's like there's this whole corporate speech scene where he's like, "I know some of you are very upset about this cover story about a pandemic, and you're." Wondering how your families are feeling back home. But I have no indication of that. He's telling us. He's not. He's doing a very poor job showing. And he's doing a lot of telling. Well, and you're supposed to show, don't tell in a visual medium. Like, I want to see somebody in that board meeting go, uh, Hey, my son, who's six years old, thinks his daddy is dead because of this cover story. And I'm freaking out. Right. You know? Like, I have no indication that these people are reacting to... The outside circumstances. We talk a lot about, we like movies where something shakes the ant farm. This movie shakes the human ant farm, but the ants don't really seem to react to that. <laughs> right. At least right. for the first half. Again, this is really me talking about the first half of the film. And I can defend some of that under capital A art. Um, 
you know, the boo. <laughs> so madman in space, but without the interesting stuff. Yes, that's exactly what it is. That oh sucks. My. That's terrible. <laughs> that's the worst thing ever. I don't want to see Don Draper going up into space and being like, I know you all are very unsatisfied with this uh, product, this product, <laughs> but uh, I want you all to know that we're redoubling our efforts to figure out what the hell this monolith thing is. Isn't that crazy? Yes. Well, I so, really boosted morale. Like they just talk and talk and talk yes. and talk and talk, and which it doesn't is, mean which, anything. Which is what Kubrick is trying to show you. So here's what he's showing. Right before this movie, science fiction was just a B-grade piece of crap that the teenagers watched so that they could say that they were watching something when they were really making out, and that's all the stuff that shows up on MST3K, which we love so much. But right? it conquered so- the Earth as art. <laughs> conquered the Earth as high art, man. Mm, well, the giant Gila monster is one of the top ten films of all time, is voted okay. by AFI, or maybe I made that up. <laughs> I think you made that up. So Kubrick comes along. He's like, no, no, we're going to put a lot of money into this, and we're going to actually pull from the real world that we're living in. So in the 60s, yes, it was Mad Men. There are corporate logos all over this movie. Which I do like. And he's showing you the suppressed, bureaucratic, man-in-the-gray-flannel spacesuit stuff that was dominant in American culture, right? In the 50s and 60s, you had board meetings just like that. And he's trying to show you that's the peak of human organization is this jerk standing up going, well, I know you guys are concerned, but try and hold on to your story a little longer. And I really care about hearing what you have to say. All right, I'm out. Right? Peace! <laughs> he, he shows a boring uh, board meeting because it's supposed to be boring. That's sort of the 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 trick and the the funny thing is he's having a meeting on a space station on the moon. Yeah, and it's still a boring corporate America. I, I just this goes back to classic conversations we've had on this podcast where if your objective is to be boring or repulsive and you succeed at it, okay, you've bored me out of my skull. Congrats! <laughs> like I don't I don't see. Like, I mean, I guess I can appreciate the artistic achievement that he is able to bore me out of my skull with a boring meeting, but like, okay, to what end? And I feel like to what end is only answered in the second half. Again, I have plenty of nice things to say about the second half of this film. Well, I still want to hold, I'm really right on the line here because I understand. So Samuel's problem is that he has seen movies like Aliens, okay? (laughs) No, no, not even Aliens. Aliens is an unfair comparison. Alien, Alien takes right. these ideas, the corporate stuff, and the, makes them much grimier. It makes them much grimier, yeah. and actually has people talking like people. <laughs> yes, you know? it does. It does. So, so that's again fair game for us to ask. You know, since we live in a world where Alien exists and the Star Wars universe exists, and and all these interesting other stories, do we really need to go back and revere two thousand and one? And so. I'm still defending in the first half, you know, this clean, uh, really colorless, bureaucratic humanity because it matches the clean, bureaucratic space, right? I mean, he's showing you all these really uh, futuristic, um, very well-designed spaceships and space stations and satellites and pods, you know, like... This is what it's going to look like when humans go into space and live there because we have figured it out, right? And it was happening. This movie actually comes out right before we land on the moon. But the whole idea that we're going to conquer space was right in front of humanity at that point. 
And here he is saying, well, if we project that a couple of decades in the future, look at how, you know, it's, it's as calm and how as easy, how pedestrian it is. It's like crossing the street. Yeah, you know, daddy's gone to work for a little while. On the moon. On the moon! But here's the problem with that, is that the whole rest of the thesis of the film seems to be that space is darkness, disease, and death, and we can't handle it. And then, like, this moon base, which has supposedly cut itself off from all the other ones, and everyone's freaking out, everyone's like, what's going on with this moon base? Everything's still running just fine, everyone's still got little food, and oh, they're making these sandwiches better than ever. Like, you can't have both. Well, that's, so you should show the right. really nice pedestrian madman stuff when he's going to that satellite that's going to get him to yes. the moon. Show the right. pristine everything. And then when he gets to the moon base that has deliberately cut itself off now for several weeks and should be probably running low, presumably on supplies and, and morale should be low. Like everyone goes to that board meeting on the moon and everyone's dressed to the nines. I want to see people there with at least like some ties maybe loosened. Like, like <laughs> dude, we've been on here for four weeks and we haven't been able to talk to anyone but each other and we're going to go crazy yeah. if you don't let us talk about this monolith thing right, soon. Right, right. There is like, well, and, and, and as soon as something's in danger of happening, as soon as they go to the monolith on the moon and the thing starts going, in a really obnoxious way. Thank you, Stanley. Um, then we get intermission. Intermission! <laughs> Something's so. in danger of happening. <laughs> Gotta let people take a smoke break, whatever you choose to smoke. Like, Well, that's yeah. true. That's true. So I do agree with you that is, you know, in terms of showing the danger to the humans from this unknown thing, uh, we get a high-pitched whine, and everybody puts their hands to their ears on their spacesuits, and then that's it. Like Which nobody... doesn't even make any sense. You can't even touch your ears. Is it? <laughs> Stupid jackass. Well, there shouldn't be any sound in space, right? Well, like, presumably no... it's like broadcasting into their brains. Maybe. Was my I thought. don't know. <laughs> but then you get into like scanners territory. I don't think Stanley wanted to go there. No, no. <laughs> right, right, right. So, yeah, as soon as something starts to happen to the humans... Then he cuts to intermission. Yeah. And then you got 18 months later on our way to Jupiter. Which they don't even explain why they're going to Jupiter until like like three-fourths of the way into the movie. Like, okay, so this radio signal that the monolith thing sent apparently was pointing towards Jupiter. Okay, fine. That's not a twist, though. You don't need to reveal that to me. Like, I'm sitting there wondering, why are we going to Jupiter? Why are we going to Jupiter? Why are we going to Jupiter? the whole time? And it's just like, uh, there's there's so much like obfuscation of things that don't need to be this mysterious or complex and and there's other things that are very simple that i don't know i just i just wish so he's he's busy making a piece of art he's okay? so busy making a piece he, of he's art he's busy making a piece of art that the soundscapes are actually amazing so there is that high pitched whine and and he mimics that with actually human voices that are pitched there's a piece of music that's a choir piece that's really annoying. Oh, dude, I love the monolith choir thing. It, yeah. <laughs> Man, I love that. That was like my favorite thing in the movie. And Reminds the, me of Halo. I love it. And then, of course, he's got uh, the classical music, which is art, capital art. A. That's, he's trying to show you this is the peak of human civilization. Is what he's depicting. But then he'll also go completely silent. Or, as things start to fall apart in the second half, you hear the astronauts breathing inside their suits as they're flying through space. So I actually really picked up on the sound this time. Uh, usually this movie is known for its visuals. But boy, the sound editing and the sound part of the story was really nice. Yeah, so you get to the second half and he just kind of introduces this whole new theme of like AI. Like, okay, that just came out of nowhere. Like, no one has even hinted that artificial intelligence is a thing in this setting yet. Like, you'd feel like 
That's true. When the guy goes to the space station, on yeah, his he way doesn't to the encounter moon, a single AI. He's not talking to any machine. Yeah, yeah like, that's true. like, and they just put an AI <laughs> on this point. thing, and and it's like, oh, I guess now we're a story about the Deckner, uh, the the dangers of techno futurism, and I just, yeah. there's so many things and themes going on. I don't think it hangs together or creates like a greater sum of its parts. I do like Hal. I think Hal is the most human character because Hal <laughs> is like worried and anxious and kind of a dick. And like, <laughs> and that's even before he goes crazy. Like he's, he's, he's very self-satisfied. He's very smug. He asks, but he also sometimes asks questions in a very childlike manner. He's very like, yeah. kind of like, I'm sorry to bother you, Dave, but I, I just wanted to know your opinion on the mission. Like, like he's like he's imposing on Dave. Like, yeah. and we can talk about if it's all an act, if it's if there's something that he determines is wrong with Dave. How early does he determine that? I I I like Hal a lot. I think Hal works great. I wish Hal had been thematically foreshadowed just a little bit more. Yeah. yeah. Um. I I do have another thing to defend on the movie. <clears throat> you were talking about you know that you're frustrated that the humans don't have more character or personality. No. But I remember those days uh, of the early moon work and, you know, to do something so dangerous and to be in charge of really complicated machinery, tools, they needed people who were very, very, very cool under pressure. And there's a famous uh, bit in the trivia on IMDb about this movie where one of the first movie reviewers to watch it was just like ah oh, this is terrible because the the astronauts have no character he had the exact same criticism you did and then you know a year later he listens to neil armstrong landing on the moon he's like oh that that's actually the way they talk <laughs> so when when dave and frank are talking on the spaceship going to jupiter that sounded completely normal to me because i remember that time and the kind of guys that they picked to run these ships um, but now, that doesn't is... make for good storytelling, but you know what? I think we've tipped too far in the other direction. Guess what? Real astronauts are not like Star-Lord. I hate to tell you that, people. They're not like Han Solo. They're not these fly-by-the-seat-of-the-pants cowboys. That makes for a good movie story, but it actually doesn't work in real life. In real life, you need astronauts like Neil Armstrong. Yeah. And that's what Kubrick is showing you. He's trying to show you something that's based in the reality that he's experiencing in the late 60s. He's not showing you Han Solo. I'm not asking for Han Solo. I'm asking for like Buzz Aldrin. Buzz Aldrin's got <laughs> Buzz Aldrin's good under pressure and has like a personality. That only has come out in the last like decade or two. Buzz was not like that. <laughs> I guess back then. So, but it's it's it does has, make for a very boring story. I, but the other thing is, if your pitch is that these guys are so cool under pressure and they're so smart, then why do they consistently act so dumb? Like, it's like, oh... They, they do make a key error. They make a huge error. That's not even like me as an... Like, as an audience member, you're always like, turn around, the killer's right behind you. Like, you have that benefit of the, the third-person perspective of yeah. not being beholden to only what one character can see, usually. Uh, with the exception of Blair Witch Project. But that's a whole other podcast. Um, but these guys make, like, just a really dumb... Error. Like when they're sitting in the pod and they're like, let's talk about Hal and make sure he can't see us. Even if Hal could not read lips, even if they don't know that Hal can read lips, they keep sitting in that pod. His camera's directly facing them and they keep looking at him. Yeah. They keep like, I don't know if he's stable. And he's like looking right at it. Like Hal would eventually be like, 
it's making me very uncomfortable that you kept looking at me, Dave. <laughs> I felt very self-conscious. My blinking red light. Do you think it's too big? Like, yeah. Like, clearly, who are you talking about? It's like sitting in a in like a room and just pointing at the person continuously. It's like right. They they tell him that they're going into the pod to like fix something, and then they don't make any hand motions. There's no pretending that they're fixing something. Oh my god, these guys totally suck. Like, <laughs> apparently NASA also picks really bad liars. Um, okay, so we get through that and. And they go out to fix the sensor dish, and it gets to my favorite shot of the entire film, which is when the dude in the yellow suit, Frank, exits his space pod, and Stanley kind of Stanley Cooper kind of gets in tight on the pod, which is turning around really slowly, and it's really creepy. It's really well done. It's like seeing the killer coming up the stairs. And then Hal's light comes on on the pod, and then the very next shot is just Dave watching the little monitor screen, and the, Frank, the guy in yellow, just going. Like fast at like sixty miles an hour, just careening into space, and and no more Frank. For some reason, I just thought it was like the funniest thing. I almost laughed out loud in the theater because it's just (laughs) it's such a SpongeBob moment. It's such a like. Well, let's see how Patrick's doing. (laughs) There he goes. Oh my god, I love it. And then Dave again, who's supposed to be really smart, cool scientist dude. He's like. In a rush, but not really in a rush, because he's still, like, kind of walking to the pod. Yeah. But he's still in a, enough of a rush that he doesn't remember to put his space helmet on. Yeah, like, I forgot his space helmet. It's such a contrivance. There's so much. Yeah. And and I can't well, even so tell that, if it's that, in character or out of character, because I don't know what this dude's character is. So that's the problem with, <gasps> with the auteur theory, where the director is God. And, of course, Kubrick is example number numero uno for that. But the problem is, you always see his hand. Right in, yeah. in all of these movies, for God's sakes, in the opening of The Shining, you can see the helicopter that's shooting the camera shot of the car winding its way up to the resort. Yeah. You know, I mean... <laughs> movies you, are made by people, and people are fallible. Like, and, and that's what makes movies beautiful, is that it takes a team of a lot of people well, to even get this thing to the screen. And for him to just, like, this is my vision and my my vision of the future and, and you know... Uh, right, my, so my problem art. is, is he acts like he has a perfect vision and people treat him like that, and he's just a guy. Just and he makes guy. plenty of mistakes, and I, and I actually like movies where I can't necessarily see the hand of the director all the time. Well, we as Star Wars fans have also learned over time that, you know, God is fallible. <laughs> <laughs> Your creator is not what you believe him to be. Look, speaking if, of the creator. If Stanley Kubrick would have kept directing, eventually you would have gotten Stanley Kubrick's Jar Jar equivalent, okay? You did. It's called Eyes Wide Shut. <laughs> <laughs> Harsh. Okay, Which, by did, the way, was not part of the summer of Kubrick. I did have a really good line last night, though, about, I think, what Kubrick's going for here. And I do want to give him credit for this. James Cameron famously said that the Alien franchise is about humans going into space, shining a light into the darkness, and what happens if that light goes out. I think 2001 A Space Odyssey is a story of humans going into space, shining a light in space, and what happens if that light blinds us because we can't handle it. Like We cannot handle being out there. That seems to be the thesis that Stanley Kubrick is running with. It's yeah. a pretty deeply pessimistic thesis that yeah. we are bound to this blue and green orb of ours because our brains will basically just melt if we go out there and we try and which is the way those. to bolster the pro you know this is the way to answer uh, what you see as the problems in the narration of the 
of the movie. You know, I was able to fill that in pretty quickly. I've seen the movie a couple of times now. And, you know, all that trippy stuff at the end where suddenly Dave ends up in this, you know, French uh, 18th century hotel room, you know, at different stages of life. I think it's pretty easy to see that that's him not being able to handle what he sees on Jupiter, right? That, that he goes into basically psychic meltdown, which is why Hal was trying to kill the humans because he, you know, could tell that the humans were not going to be able to handle Yeah, it. he made some kind of psychiatric evaluation and decided these two chuckle futzes are not going <laughs> to handle this really well. I got to get these dudes the F out of here. Because Hal's going to fulfill the mission, which yeah. is to go to Jupiter and to analyze whatever it is out there. Yeah, the monolith. To, right, and we never find out what the monolith is because I think Kubrick is trying to show you the the danger of humans in a boardroom feeling like they're sitting on top of the world. Now, Aliens and Alien does the same message. It is, we think we're hot stuff, except we're going to run into aliens who have acid for blood, and we make nice little pink, soft, chewy morsels. <laughs> so Kubrick is trying to get at the same message, but in this high art psychedelic late 60s way and so if i'm asked if somebody has to sit and watch this start to finish to get the point or the message i think the answer is no yeah the answer is no kick this thing right out go watch alien man <laughs> alien well, has an evil ai alien has mother yes that's true it's i don't got, care anymore it's got I don't, I don't, go watch and it's a much it's a it's it's Man, Alien still holds up. Alien's so good. But like And the this... pieces of this movie that you need you can just find on YouTube. Yeah. You know, like you can literally find H. John Benjamin yeah. doing how You like my you like my orange light? You like orange. <laughs> and people I Bye-bye, think dude. people watching that skit on the late show, they don't need to have watched the movie. I'll bet most of them have never seen the movie start to finish. But these pieces are a part of our culture and, and I'm okay with that. At this point, I don't think you need to watch the movie. No, I, 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 this movie is very influential. And, but as we've discussed on previous podcasts, just because you influence other things is not making necessarily part of the canon. Sometimes your children pick up the torch and they run with it. And, and I just think that these themes have been done better in other places. And I also think they've been done in a more optimistic fashion. You know, contact has a very similar idea that Mm. we can't handle it. Right. Our perception of time is going to get messed with super hard when That's we go true. into space. And I like Contact very much. But Contact is also a very, very deeply optimistic film. Yeah. Because it says not only is space not darkness, disease, and death fundamentally to us. I mean, it is scary. It's going to be hard. But it might even be our salvation. You know, remember in Contact, there's that character who goes up to right. be in zero gravity because it will slow the progress of his cancer. Right. That's right. And he buys himself months. Yeah. You know, yeah. it, it you know space it will be difficult, but it might also be the only thing left to us. You know, so I, I I there's and there is you know I've been bragging on this movie, but I also see pieces of this movie in things that I love. You know, uh, Warhammer is all about you know here's a mysterious artifact that's going to mess with people's brains, and how do you handle that? Yeah. Uh, Halo is very much Star Wars mixed with 2001: Space Odyssey because. You know, these alien races and the humans find this technology they don't understand. And it interrupts their Star Wars. They're having a Star Wars. And then the monolith shows up in the middle of it. And they're like, whoa, 
what's this? And neither of them can handle it. So we'll go into more detail. I like the way you described that to me last night. Well, we won't go too long on Halo here. I mean, I should probably at some point do a podcast with my brother about Halo and its status sure. in the canon. But the first Halo game really is a very cold open. It really just says, okay, humans are losing a war against an alien conglomerate of species that are kicking our butts up and down the street. And we just made a blind jump into hyperspace, their, you know, slip space, their equivalent. And we didn't put in any coordinates and we just came out on the other side and we see this giant alien artifact that's big enough to actually walk on. It has its own atmosphere and everything. Hmm. And the humans understand perfectly what this artifact is, but have no reverence for it. It is a weapon. It is a giant space hula hoop that fires a space nuke. Okay, so it's a and, weapon. Yeah, and the aliens have a huge reverence for it. They see it as the monolith, this thing that will lead them to the next life, this beautiful, uh, the, their next stage in their evolution, but they don't understand what it actually is. Hmm. So it's this weird inverse where, where one group has understanding and no reverence, and the other group has reverence but no understanding. Mm-hmm. And uh, then you shoot each other. It's awesome. <laughs> I love Halo. Well, and so there is that complicated message, I think, at the end of 2001, because so... Dave, the the human astronaut, he conquers Hal. I mean, th- that's probably the most moving scene of the whole uh, epic. Oh, God. Is yeah, him he killing, kills uh... Hal? Right. The, what we create, the the ultimate tool, artificial intelligence, which is supposed to mimic us, you know, becomes our enemy. He has to kill Hal, yeah. and then he carries on the mission, and he can't handle it. So you know, there's humans, you know, destroying. Their own creation. Yeah. And then they come face-to-face with the monolith and have evolved no further than the monkeys at the beginning. Yeah. And he can't handle it. Evangelion touches on that theme as well. Evangelion says, like, look, we're at an evolutionary dead end. Like, we're not getting any better. This is the end for us. Yeah. All we can do is improve our technology, but we are done. We're at yeah. the end of our... We're not going to grow wings someday. We're right. done. That's right. Um, so... Well, and so that's... So I thought that that would grip you a little more since we now live in... An artificial intelligence I like world. Hal. I like you everything know, that's going got... on with Hal, but I think Hal's the message of Hal is muddied by these other themes, and it's also not foreshadowed very well. And I, I just don't think it's very difficult to believe that Hal is the this all-knowing, all-powerful supercomputer when there's just some really basic, stupid stuff that ends in his death. Like, like as soon as Dave gets back on the ship, he's got no countermeasures to stop him. He has no way of like, oh, well, he got back on the ship. I'm screwed. Like well, That's true. That's he right. Doesn't, he doesn't mess with the, the atmosphere. He doesn't be like, well, glad you're back on board, Dave. Watch as I now vent atmosphere into the void. Like, right, like right. He doesn't, he's just like. That's true. There, there's some real, there's a narrative sluggishness to this that can only be appreciated if you think you're sitting in a museum yeah. looking at art. Yeah. Uh, whatever. This movie works much better as a theme song for Ric Flair. (laughs) Woo! Woo! (laughs) All right. I think that's 30 minutes. And uh, how long is 2001? God, it's... Ass-numbingly long. (laughs) (laughs) So we've told you everything you need to know in 30 minutes. Stay away from the monoliths. Stay away from the monoliths. And keep your eye on Alexa. Yeah, seriously. (laughs) I'm Samuel. And I'm Bentley. And this has been the Re... View... Podcast. Podcast.